Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, guys. Welcome to episode 96 of A True Crime Couple. I'm Kay. And I'm John. If you guys are new to the show, welcome. Here I tell my lovely co-host, my husband, the stories of murder and craziness, and he reacts in real time with all of you guys. It's a job that he loves because he doesn't have to do any research. He just sits there and looks pretty. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, everybody that's been listening to our podcast for a while knows that that's not true. Sort of. (laughs) No, you're a great contributor. I I try. (laughs) I do other stuff. You do, you do. I do other I'm stuff. not I'm not like discounting you. I'm just explaining what you do. Okay. Um if you're a returning listener, hello, we missed you. And as always, thank you for any comments that you may have left on our social media sites and for any reviews you may have left us on whichever podcast listening platform that you use. It all really helps us out. And so does spreading the word. So if you like us, tell a fellow true crime lover, we have to all stick together. And lastly, a huge thank you to all of our supporters on Patreon. You are the backbone of this show, and we appreciate you contributing to us and all of the conversations that we get to have with you on our Patreon page. At the end of this episode, we will be thanking our newest supporters. So if that's you, stay tuned. All right, are you ready? Let's do it. Prior to 1943, the island of Koh Tao was uninhabited. The dry evergreen forests that dominated the majority of the island are framed by some of the most beautiful beaches that this world has to offer. On the shores of those beaches sit massive smooth boulders that remain a memory to the island's volcanic origins. In 1933, there was a political uprising in Thailand, a bloodless coup in which a constitutional order was established in Thailand. This, of course as all history is, is not as simple as that one sentence was, and it was years in the making and took years to create and stabilize. One very complicating factor to the creation of this new regime was World War II. Thailand maintained neutrality during the early years of the conflict until 1941, when Japan invaded and occupied the country for five hours, which eventually led to an armistice and alliance with Thailand and the Japanese Empire. The Thai government, in its state of transition, was in no position to fight. Thailand was important for Japan as they needed the country to gain access to Burma and Malaya as they were controlled by the British at the time. Because of the political coup, instability and disagreements regarding the war and the occupation of Japanese soldiers at the time, many were arrested and the number of political prisoners grew. So where to put them? The Thai government chose to build a prison structure on the island of Koh Tao. The island at that point was used only as a stopping point for fishermen traveling through. The 104 prisoners were controlled by 15 wardens on the island. To keep control, they were brutal. Later, the prisoners would reflect that their two years on the island were the worst they had to endure during their imprisonment. The shark-infested waters were used as punishment for prisoners. 
malaria ran rampant in the poorly made structures, and several died because of the poor care they received. Because of the remoteness of the island, it was also difficult to bring supplies to the prisoners, who would go weeks without receiving a proper portion of food. According to Kotau, a complete guide, one prisoner wrote that the only joy each day was watching the sun set to the sea. It is a spectacular scene. The waves are light purple with an indigo sky. In 1944, the prisoners were all released from their sentences and were allowed to return to the mainland as a result of the new constitutional regime. From 1947 through 1983, a few families chose to move to the island and live a simple existence of fishing by building simple structures to live in close to the coast. But in 1984, the beauty of the island was realized, and in true 1980s fashion, Someone chose to monetize it. Bungalows were built and the first tourists started coming in. Quickly, Koh Tao's turquoise waters became known for their scuba diving and snorkeling views, and most importantly to travelers, the endless beachfront bars. In the early 2000s, Thailand's best-kept secret was revealed by young backpackers traveling through Southeast Asia. The word was getting out amongst the traveling community. If you're looking for one of the most beautiful places in the world, gorgeous naturescapes, scuba diving, beach bars, and an insane nightlife, where the police are somewhat non-existent, head over to Koh Tao. By the 2010s, the island saw around 500,000 visitors a year. On the surface, the island was heaven on earth for travelers looking to escape the world, to party all night, and sleep all day on the white sand beaches. A lawless paradise. Such a far cry from the heavily policed western worlds. But the underbelly of that paradise was a far cry from the excited stories the backpackers had to tell. On the island there existed corruption, racism, disorder, and starting in 2014, a string of very complicated murders that just did not seem to make sense. Their exposure would muddy the reputation of the island, and still does to this day. The case we will focus on today, the death of two backpackers, will bring up other complicated deaths that occurred on the island. A police force will be under fire, a local mafia will be exposed, and families will try to seek justice in a place that was sought after for turning their cheek to it. Police say the suspect, 31-year-old Jeffrey Dahmer, has confessed to the killings of 11 people whose remains were found in his apartment. We are all evil in some form or another, are we not? Lock your doors, lock your windows. If you have the ability to provide additional security devices, then by all means do so. From what I said in the introduction, it's obvious as to why young backpackers in Thailand would eventually find themselves in Koh Tao. The party island is an interesting place as it is always packed with tourists, but still feels like a remote island because much of it is underdeveloped and it is only accessible by ferry. It was an experience that most backpackers wanted. Like they want to be surrounded by comfort, other travelers, but they also want, you know, the excitement of a new place that seems to be undiscovered. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's adventurous, right? I mean, that's that's the goal. It's adventurous and they feel safe. Right. 
So that is what brought Hannah Witherich and David Miller to the island in September of 2014. Hannah was 23 years old and on vacation with her friends. She was in an interim in her life. She was taking a break from her postgraduate work and she wanted an adventure to go out and live her life while she was still young. Her family did not really want her to travel to Thailand, as most of their parents would be nervous about their children traveling thousands of miles away to a foreign country where they'd never been before. But Hannah booked her ticket anyway. She was going to be staying at the Ocean View Bungalows, and that was the perfect name for them. From her balcony, she had sweeping views of Sairi Beach. The very well-known beach was serene during the day and came alive at night with its line of bars at the beachfront. And this was a far cry from Great Yarmouth, where Hannah was from on the east coast of England. I mean, it's like, you know what? It's, is it safe to say that, like, all people from the UK are very adventurous? I feel like that's just, they got that, like, all wrapped up. Like, I feel like Americans aren't as adventurous as people, people from, from the Europe. UK. Yeah. Well, well I would Europe. say people from Europe, Europe in Europe, general. Yes. I, I really feel that way. I think that they are just the adventurous type, and we're not. I feel like sometimes Americans might live in a bubble of the United States because it's different. Whereas, like, in Europe, it's very casual and easy to travel country to country, whereas in the United States, it's not. Yeah, I mean, it's I, more of like state to state is an easy travel. Like us going to like Pennsylvania would be like someone in France traveling to another country for a day. You know what I mean? It's just yeah. a different kind of experience they grow up with. But I, but I think it's cool, though. I think no, that's I think awesome. it's amazing. Yeah, I just I always find that really like interesting that they yeah. are just so comfortable with that. It's cool. And David Miller was also staying at the Ocean View bungalows and was not a stranger to island life. He was from Jersey, not our Jersey, (laughs) totally different Jersey, Um, which is part of the Channel Islands. And Jersey is British crown dependent, but it's a lot closer to France than it is to England. And it's my understanding, please correct me if I'm wrong, listeners, that the people of Jersey don't consider themselves British or French, which I get because like Jersey in the United States, like I feel like we're our own entity too. (laughs) <laughs> I think it's just in a name, you know? Maybe. So I, I totally get it. If you do feel that way, if you don't, please correct me because I don't know. And I feel like it's always great to get an understanding of what life is like for other people in other places. You know, it's when we cover these cases, one thing that I find to do is so hard about covering an area that you don't know too much about is... And I'm sure you guys feel the the same way if you're a true crime podcast listeners. Like if any case gets covered around where you're from, it's like you almost want to scream at the podcasters like that's not the atmosphere of the town or like that's totally normal for us. Or, you know, I feel like you get you have a good understanding of the area, whereas it's that's why it's hard to cover cases that are from so far away. So this is a new land for us going to Thailand. It's pretty cool, though. Yeah, it is cool. And trying to understand how the people of Jersey define themselves. So so just let us know. Well, David was also looking for an escape as he was supposed to start a scholarship for an internship with a mining company. So to celebrate before the real world kicked in, he and a group of really close friends decided to go to Thailand. 
Hannah and David, as well as the friends they were traveling with, all met each other early on in their travels as they were staying at the same hotel, and their hotel had thrown a full moon party. This is something that Thailand is actually really famous for. And this full moon party was held on Sairi Beach, which is obviously directly right in front of their bungalows. A full moon party is an all-night beach party held either on the night of the full moon or the night after. And this is a tourist tradition that began in the early 1980s, obviously even when the the island was established as a tourist uh, destination. And it quickly spread to the other islands. Like this started in Thailand, but spread to the islands of Thailand. Well, obviously, I mean mainland Thailand. So... All of these parties spread in popularity by word of mouth. And by the time that Hannah and David experienced a full moon party, it had blown into like a rave. That's pretty cool, though. Like you could like, (laughs) I guess the closest thing you could associate it to was like an EDM concert where like everyone's in neon or they have like neon paint all over their bodies. People are dressed like really loudly and with little clothes and it's just an all-night party. It goes to the sunrise until the moon goes down. Come on, Kay. If you were, like, 25, you'd want to do it, too. Well, I mean, that was only six years ago. I so know. Well, You're you making know. me feel old. <laughs> I don't know. At 25, well, I still was getting, like, massive hangovers. Like, I would say 22, I would be game. You know what? I'd say 21, I'd be game, too. Yeah. Like, no, you're, not a, you're not a big drinker. Yeah, I mean, but, you could take drugs. You could whatever. I mean, I'm whatever you want to do. You're on vacation, buddy. Well, listen, I I probably I can't. Well, I wouldn't be doing drugs, but <laughs> I mean, I probably would drink, and I probably have a good time with all the music. But that's about it. It seems to be really fun, and it's something that is done all over the place, and like every well-known either bar or resort has like their own full moon party, and they're like trying to all outdo each other. See, that's see. That's intense. That's good. So that night, David and Hannah really hit it off. And all of them would often meet up together at night and experience the wild nightlife on the island together. Or they would hang out at the beach during the day. At around 7 p.m. on September 14th, 2014, the two groups of friends met up to have a few drinks at a bar on the beach located right next to their hotel location. They stayed until midnight when the group broke up. Hannah and her three girlfriends chose to go on to a different beachfront bar called the AC Bar. David's friends go back to their bungalow, but he does not. We know this because of released CCTV footage that David headed to a supermarket where he's seen eating food and kind of like stopping and talking to people along the way. Okay. So basically, his friends were done with the night, but he wasn't. Yeah, he wanted to explore. He was curious. At around 2 a.m., he joined Hannah at the AC bar. They shared a drink, and about 15 to 20 minutes into his arrival at the bar, Hannah told her friends that she is going to leave the bar with David, and the two of them were going to have a walk on the beach. Her friends have no objection because they trust David, and they know that Hannah really liked him. The two then went on to walk the length of Syri Beach. Most likely, they just wanted to get some privacy because the bar was really packed. They thought that they were safe being only meters away from the hotel that they were both staying at. But they were very wrong. In the early morning hours of September 15th, 
A Burmese woman was walking along the beach to get to the Ocean View bungalows, where she worked as a cleaner. Her shift started very early in the morning and consisted mainly of cleaning up from the night before. She stumbled upon a horrific scene and ran to wake her boss, the owner of the hotel and the AC bar in which they had drunk in the night before. His name was Montrewat Tuvenchian. The woman was mute, so she could not tell him what was happening, but he knew it must be something bad for her to be in the state of distress that she was in and to wake him up. She urged him to follow her, and out of run, the two set off for Syri Beach, where Tuvechian saw what his employee was so upset about. Blood covered the white beach, and the two bodies were lying lifeless. One was on the sand, close to the boulders, and another was in the surf. They then went back up to the hotel to call the Thai police. The crime scene that greeted the police had to have been the worst that they had ever seen. Hannah was found on the beach. Her clothes were off. Only her bra was still on. They were strewn around her body. She had been brutally beaten. Her face caved in. It would later be determined that she was also raped. About 12 meters away from her body was David, wearing just his shorts as his t-shirt was amongst Hannah's clothing. His body ebbed and flowed with the waves that came in. He had deep lacerations to his head, and each time the waves came out, they would take back with them more blood from the 24-year-old man, which made the water near him a dark, dark red. As the Thai police tried to secure the scenes as best as they knew how, news about the murders spread like wildfire throughout the island. The sergeant of the Royal Thai Police Force on the island, which, mind you, is only six officers in total, is the first officer to arrive at the scene. And I just kind of want to, like, put that in perspective. The population of the island itself is about 1,500. And when the tourists are there, you can imagine the population is extremely high. It probably quadruples, especially during times where they're like it's active season. So to only have six officers on duty is nothing, especially when it's known as a party place. You would think they would they would activate more cops during their busy seasons, at least. Right. I mean. Or just all the time. I mean, even yeah, even true. for just the population of the island being 1,500, you would think you'd have more than six police officers. I mean, no, you're, you're 100% right. I mean, there's some counties in, in, in the United States that don't even have six cops, I'm sure, in small towns. If you get pulled over in New Jersey, you have six police officers. <laughs> I mean, that's like, true. that's, that's, that's true. What, like just three, what happens. Yeah, it's like three police cars, six cops. Yeah. It's just like, hey, what's going on? You were speeding? Uh, speeding a little bit. <laughs> yeah. So it's just, it seems, but like I said in the intro, like we're not used to this. I I don't want to say that we're over-policed, but we are used to a police presence that this island didn't have. And that's why some people sought it out. But when things go wrong, you want it. There's never a... It's a double-edged sword. Right. There's no balance there. So in all of his interviews that I have seen and all of the recorded video of him, which we'll get into later, this officer seemed to be completely and utterly in over his head. 
Clearly, these officers are going to struggle with many things regarding this murder investigation. There is a lack of training when it comes to homicide investigations. I mean, they're just six officers, right? And the island itself is given limited resources to work with. And quite simply, there's just not enough of them. There's not enough manpower to investigate this, police the island, secure the crime scene. It's just not going to work. And none of this is made more clear than during the crime scene investigation itself. The officers marked off the perimeter of the crime scene with sticks and tape because it was all they had. But while the six officers are collecting evidence, a crowd forms. The media on the island and the tourists gather. They walk throughout the crime scene and take pictures of the blood, the clothes, and the Thai police working. They also, unfortunately, take pictures of the bodies of Hannah and David. The pictures that were taken were uploaded to social media sites, Facebook and Instagram. See, I, I don't care, in my opinion, I don't care where you are. I don't you know. I feel like you should be keeping people, the public, out of the way. There should be, I don't want to say barricade, but, uh, you know, just no, there a, should be. You know, there Crime should be scene. a line. There should be a line. Yeah, exactly. Well, all they had was the sticks and the tape. But, I mean, I think it's also the responsibilities of these tourists and even the media that were on Kotao don't take pictures of the victims. I mean, it's, it, it's, it's super insensitive. Respect. Yeah, it's yeah. super insensitive. And, I mean, I you know what it is, too? Probably nothing happens there. Nothing. So when something like like, like two people being murdered on a beach, right? That's going to just bring in everyone. Like, it's true. I, you know yeah. You know what I'm saying? So, I mean, I understand the... The fascination with this yes. taking place. However, out of respect to the victims and their families who weren't even notified at this time yet, these pictures should have never been uploaded. But No, and, and listen, and those tourists, they know better. They do. Come on. So, as you can imagine, this did not go over well. The Royal Thai Police Force in Bangkok got involved as it was clear that this investigation was becoming an embarrassment to the police on the island and on the mainland. The police on the island didn't know what they were doing, so a senior officer was sent over to head the investigation, and with him he brought 53 additional officers. Now the police presence on the island went from six to 60 overnight. Well, that's they need to do that now. I agree. The senior officer called David Miller's parents and apologized for the leaked photos of his son and the fact that that's how they found out about the death of their son. See, they even realized like that was <laughs> this up. is not yeah. right. And um, it's really sad that that's how his parents found out. The pictures of Hannah were um, unidentifiable because of the damage done to her face, but also the police were working to collect DNA evidence from her. So she was more covered, like, because there was more people around her collecting evidence, and there was a tarp near her. Eventually, they do cover the bodies with a tarp. At the crime scene, the Thai police stated that they found cigarette butts, the victim's clothing, the murder weapon, which was a garden hoe at the scene, and they also collected DNA from the body of Hannah Weatheridge. They claimed that the DNA that was found belonged to two unknown Asian males. I guess they did the bio testing first to just determine whether or not it was Westerners that committed the crime or 
people from the island. Right, which is smart. But also you have travelers that are there. So there's it doesn't necessarily mean identify tourist versus islander because there are people that are traveling that are also could be of Asian descent that could have committed the crime. So it just, I guess, narrows down some witnesses. They did the bio testing first, but I just I'll, we'll go back to this because the amount of times the Thai police test this DNA sample is unbelievable. So, I mean, it, they never clarify what DNA sample it is, whether it's blood or it's semen, but it had to have been a large sample to have been tested the amount of times the Thai police test it. But we'll get into the testing of the DNA a little bit later. We also have to call into question the reliability of the evidence collection and the cross-contamination that was happening because there was no blocking off of the crime scene. So media and tourists were walking through the crime scene the whole time. Also, I want to add, if you think about it too, right? If they're on the beach where this, is take, where this has taken place, don't forget that that party went all night. No, no, they didn't. This isn't the full moon party. They oh. met at the full moon party like... A week before. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. Uh, you know what? Because I was going to say that. I mean, there's people on the beach all night doing their thing. So. Well, there could have been people on the beach that... I mean, I just feel like if they would have saw that, it would have been reported. True. But I'm just saying as far as evidence, like like DNA or like anything, cigarette butts even, like people could be smoking on the beach and just flicking it. You know what well, I mean? They could have been there before the murders took place. Correct. So some of this evidence, you don't really know where when it got there. Right. Now... Another thing, just to like give you like the time frame, is that they were most likely killed after they left the bar. So sometime around 2.30 a.m., their bodies were found at 5 a.m. So it was only a few hours that their bodies were there. Okay. So all of the evidence that was collected was also just wrapped in blue tarp and placed in the trunk of a police vehicle, as recorded in and seen in crime scene photos. So this all just calls into question the security of the crime scene, the collection of evidence, and the validity of the DNA samples. There's just a lot of doubt here when it comes to the collection of any type of evidence at the scene. Well, because the mis- the mismanagement, right, and the ha- and the not and not having the proper handling with evidence can really hurt you. It hinders you, right? I mean, if oh, you have totally. nothing to go off of, because the evidence has been ruined. Because many people were present at the crime scene and saw what happened to the Western tourists, there was a lot of talk going on. Rumors began circulating about the powerful families that lived on the island. According to many Westerners who lived on the island for many years, and of course, this is all alleged and is all speculation, there are three families that control different parts of Koh Tao. They own the businesses and operate the island. These families own the resorts, the bars, and the scuba diving schools and locations, which the island is known for scuba diving. Amongst travelers, it is known that in the early 2000s, you could get a scuba diving certification by paying for it and not having to take any of the courses, which can take a long time. So this was kind of like an illegal thing that was going on on Koh Tao, and that's one thing the island was known for, so people would pay a lot of money And just get their scuba diving license. And that was one of these families that was considered a part of the Kotao Mafia. Okay. Would control that. However, it might have changed since then. So we don't even know if that's true. And we don't even know if it's still happening. So again, we are using the word alleged the whole time. 
Yes. I might even make that the title of the episode. This is all alleged. (laughs) Either way, the families were very wealthy because of all the businesses they owned. They controlled the money and they always knew everything that was happening on the island, even down to who was coming and going on the ferries because they owned them as well. Another thing that the families were involved in was the selling of meth, something that had become somewhat of an epidemic amongst the poorer populations of the island. Wow. You wouldn't think that drugs like that would be rampant on an island so beautiful, right? Well, it's the seedy underbelly of paradise. I guess so. Many people were being told that the owner of the AC bar, Tuvechian, the man that had initially called police, had actually been the one that was responsible for the murders. The Tuvechians were one of the families that controlled the island, so they're one of the three. And because of this, if the rumors are all true, they would have control over the police as well. Now, the word on the island is that this man was the one who committed the murders. And something that's a little curious is that he's seen in various pictures standing with and talking to the police while they navigate and investigate the crime scene. Like parts of the crime scene that were keeping people away from, Tuvechian was allowed inside and he's photographed talking with the police in these like restricted areas. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know what to make of that because... Like what would give, I mean, maybe it's because he's a business owner and it's on his property. Like, I don't, I don't know. I just don't know what would give him the, the right to be next to them while they're looking over a crime scene. Well, in an interview that he gave for a British documentary covering the murders and it was made in 2015, Tvechian stated that he was with the police because he had found the body and they asked him for his help, which is strange because, I mean, I understand the, the police questioning you, but I... They should know more about the crime scene investigation than he would know. So I do think it was odd that they had him there. To add to the mystery of the involvement of Tuvechian, there was an incident a week after the murders took place. Tuvechian and two police officers confronted a possible witness while he was at the bar that Tuvechian owned. The possible witness's name was Sean McGanna. He was a British tourist who had been seen covered in blood on CCTV the night of the murder. The police shared this information with Tuvechian, and they approached the man and questioned him about the night of the murders together, which is bizarre. So now you have a, the cops and him invest, uh, interrogating footage. Yes. So a, a citizen is aiding in a police investigation, which is strange. Very So Sean was taken aback when he was confronted about this, and he explained to them that he had cut himself and bled on his shirt, which is why he took his shirt off, and he was seen carrying his shirt on the CCTV footage. He then proceeded to bleed down the front of his chest, and this is when he decided, I need to go back to my hotel, clean myself off, and get a new shirt. And that is when the cameras caught him walking, when he was going back to his hotel to clean himself off. So that's what he told the police officers and Tvechian. Tvechian and the two officers continued to question him. They did not believe what he was saying. And this is something that I also don't understand because the time that Sean McGanna was questioned, the police had already come out and stated that the DNA profile they found on Hannah Weatherich's body was of two 
unknown Asian males. And Sean McGanna is of British descent. So I do think it's interesting that they're questioning him so aggressively. But I mean, I mean, I don't because I think that something's going on with this this man with the police. They're trying to find a guy to pin it on to get them off the scent of whoever else might have done it. Okay. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. I mean, that's just what it sounds like to me. I mean, if we have already established that the DNA does not match um, a British, you know, descent male and an Asian descent person, then obviously it does match. Then obviously they're trying to do something. You know what I'm saying? It doesn't make sense. It seems weird. Well, Sean McGanna wanted to leave the conversation, so he left the bar. Tuvechian and the officers followed him. To get away, he ran into a nearby grocery store. They continued to follow him. According to a post that McGanna later posted on his Facebook page, he stated that the three men cornered him and said, It was you who killed them. You've got two people's deaths on your hands. We know it was you. You are going to hang yourself tonight. This is something that I want you to remember. You are going to hang yourself tonight. Don't forget that. He added that he believed the Thai mafia was trying to kill him. Later, he gave an interview with the Telegraph and relayed the same information that he did in his Facebook post. At the end of the interview, the reporter asked Sean McGanna if he thought Tuvechian had committed the murders because that was the sentiment of the island at the time. And he said that he didn't know, but he thought that they were trying to make him the scapegoat. Like right. you said. Yeah. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With LuckyLandSlots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The first thing the Thai police wanted to do was find out who the DNA sample belonged to. They performed sweeps of the island asking all Asian males for samples. However, in looking at men who were asked to give the samples... None were business owners or members of the three families that are considered to control the island or be a part of what is called the Koh Tao Mafia. The only men that were involved in collection during the DNA sweep were the Burmese immigrants. Now, there's a lot of tension between the Thai and the Burmese on the island. So those that are coming from Burma. Thousands of Burmese had arrived on Koh Tao and stayed there as illegal immigrants. They also vastly outnumbered the Thai on the island, and they are resented for that. Like the people, the Thai people on the islands felt like the Burmese were taking the island over from them. 
Um, of course, you have to imagine they probably feel like the island gets taken over by tourists all the time, but they felt the same way about the Burmese immigrants. So the situation eventually became that the Thai on the island owned all the businesses and the Burmese worked for them. Okay, so obviously that is going to create uh, like a social disparity um, and an economic disparity amongst the two groups. So um, because the Thai are going to resent the Burmese, they're not going to treat them well as workers, which creates a whole nother issue. The workers were mistreated, underpaid and overworked. However, they were helpless in their situation as they were not legally staying in the country, so they couldn't really seek help. That's a really rough situation to be in. Yeah. You know? And it led to a lot of exploitation. And the Burmese population on the island were also the ones that were hit hardest by the meth epidemic. Okay. And that was something that was kept very quiet from the Western tourists. And obviously that can explain why the Burmese men of the island were most likely to first be swabbed for DNA matches for the case. Oh, of course. But this also makes me wonder how big the sample collected was. Remember I said that? Like, right. I forget what case it is. We've at this point covered so many. So many. Um, <laughs> but, oh, it was the bike path rapist case. Oh, yes. The Recently, one that yes. we just did. Mm-hmm. Um, when they... The FBI, when, you know, DNA first came out, they were collecting everyone's DNA and saying, test it. And eventually the FBI had to go back to the investigators and say, stop sending us samples. Like, that's not how this works, because we can only test the DNA sample we have so many times before it can't be tested anymore. So you have these massive DNA sweeps of the island, hundreds of people having their DNA tested. How many times are you really testing it against the sample? And how is that sample even valid any longer? Because, well, that's a good point. I mean, because don't they dilute the sample in order to, like, extract the DNA? Right. And then there's only a certain amount of times that the DNA sample can right. be tested. So, I mean, what are we talking about here? Like, what are they? I how big know. is this sample? What I makes know. you think? I feel like there's, like... I don't because we don't know if it's semen or blood. We don't know. Well, still, and there's two DNA, male DNAs, so we don't know if it's like a mixture of blood or semen. I don't know. This conversation has become very gross, <laughs> but I and I don't know. Okay, well, regardless, bodily secretions, right? Or or just yeah. I don't know. But anyway, what I'm trying to get at here is it's odd because <laughs> <laughs> you just said bodily secretions for no reason. Yeah, you're right. I did. <laughs> All right, hold on. Let me just get to the point though that okay. I'm trying to make here is that. Maybe they're doing this large sweep of DNA tests on a sample that's probably you can't even friggin' use. Like, right. you know, it's just to kind of like... That's what I'm saying. This whole sweep, the whole collection of... Everything is very questionable here. Right. So is it a tactic being used to scare everyone into maybe someone coming forward and confessing maybe? Because they're not or aware... Or collecting that the... DNA samples from all the Burmese on the island. Yeah, this could also be a way for them to... like to. Set people so, up the later on. To get them out. Yeah. I don't know. It's it's very interesting. Everything kind of doesn't make sense at this point, And there's there's more questions than answers when it comes to the investigation yeah, and what's happening. <laughs> I agree. Well, as soon as the DNA sweeps began, it was clear that the police on the island did not mind forcefully getting the DNA or answers from the Burmese population. 
Through an anonymous phone call, a British civil rights lawyer was called, his name is Andy Hall, to report the testing and the mistreatment that was taking place on the island. The lawyer sent an investigator to the island to see if there were truth to the claims of mistreatment, right? And then he's the one you would call a civil rights lawyer to kind of see what's going on here. There was a lot of truth to those claims. Some of the men that were questioned by the Thai police on the island had been beaten, dragged in the street, and one man even had a pot of boiling water poured over him. There are pictures that have documented all of these injuries. The injuries are quite extensive and horrific if they were done under interrogation. Well, I mean, I think that's pretty messed up. I mean, that they're doing this in interrogations. The fact that an investigator was sent to confirm those claims and that those claims are accurate, that's kind of crazy. Yeah, it's showing that there is... Uh... Not the best practices, at the very, very least, not the best practices being used by the Thai police in trying to investigate these murders. And it seems like they're being aggressive because they want to find the people that did it, right? They were aggressive with Sean McGanna, as well as a citizen. And they're being excessive with the Burmese because they want to get this solved because it's going to affect tourism on the island. And that's really what the island relies on. So we see this a lot with tourist uh, destinations when crime happens there is they want it solved because they want to maintain the safety of their location. When it affects anyone's bottom, you know, bottom dollar, you know, like their their bottom line, I mean, um, they'll do anything at this point, right? About a week and a half into the DNA sweeps and the violent questioning of potential suspects, Three men were marked as the prime suspects that the Thai police had. The three men had been seen riding a motorbike away from the crime scene just after 2.40 a.m. This would coincide with the time that the murders took place. The three men were all in their early 20s, and their names were Ming Mong, Zhao Lin, and Wei Fayo. All three were Burmese. When the men first spoke with police, they did admit that they were on Syri Beach the night of the murder. Shortly after they bring in the three men for questioning, they released one of them. Mong was released because they had nothing to hold him on, whereas the other two men could be held on immigration offenses as they weren't legally supposed to be in the country of Thailand. I think it's interesting that they just let him go. Because he was legally in the country. Where it's like, if you were with them that night, you should still be considered a suspect. At this point, they completely let him go as a suspect. But he was on the motorbike with them. So if they think the other two men did it, Mong was there. Right. I, but listen, you're, you are you have to remember that since the caretaker found the bodies from that moment, yeah. they have not done a right at all. This whole time. That's true. So, you know, we say like, oh, okay, you know, yeah, is you it injustice logic. here? Oh, you know, like, yeah, the whole the whole time from the start to now. Right. So. So the men were not read their rights or told that they can get a lawyer because the police were only questioning them as witnesses at this time. And this was October 2nd of 2014. Within those 24 hours, the two men were taken to the mainland of Thailand and formally arrested for murder, rape, and immigration offenses. 
According to the two men, they were questioned on the way to the mainland and once they got there. They were brutalized and humiliated the entire time. Zal Lin had stated that his face was covered with a plastic bag and he was kicked in the face. The members of the Thai police that were interrogating him also punched him in the chest and kicked him when he fell to the ground. They told him that if he did not confess, they were going to kill him. Wei Fio stated that he was also told to confess. He told police that he did not know anything about the murders that took place. He was then told that if he did not confess that they were going to put him and Zhao Lin into used tires and burn them. They also threatened to cut off his legs and hand and throw him into the ocean. Obviously, this would be to provoke a shark attack. That was something that was done with the prisoners in the 1940s. Well, yeah, that's right, because the, the waters were infested with sharks. Yep. Totally forgot about that. At one point, Wei Fio was stripped naked and pictures were taken of him. His lawyers claim that his testicles were also shocked during questioning. Both men were told that they were only getting out of there if they confessed. A confession would mean that they would only serve one to two years. So the choice was, are you going to spend one or two years in prison or are you going to die? The Thai police convinced them that for murder, rape and immigration charges, they would only face one to two years. Both of the men agreed to confess. All right. Well, I mean, that would never be upheld in court. So, I mean, that's kind of... Well, I mean, that's if it gets out that they did that. Yeah. I mean, but if they have a lawyer working for them, I mean, it's possible that that could be addressed. Well, at this point, that lawyer is not working for them, Andy Hall. He was only looking into the mistreatment of the Burmese. Later on, Andy Hall is going to take their case, but... They don't even have a lawyer at this point because they confessed without having a lawyer because they were taken to the mainland just as witnesses. Okay. So now they're in the mainland and they have no way of even getting in contact. They have no connections there. And that's why they were taken there and then questioned there versus being questioned on the island where at least they could have people they could talk to that would probably advise them to get a lawyer. You know what I mean? I mean, this is, yeah, I mean, it's all being done intentionally. They have no way out except to confess. Well, the Thai police vehemently deny these claims. They state that when they got to the mainland, the men were actually taken to see a doctor and their physical well-being was checked. Uh, The head of police also said that neither of the men had bruising. When the lead officer was asked whether or not he believed the men had been tortured, He said with 100% certainty that they had not been tortured. This, I feel like, is called into question because other Burmese men had been tortured under questioning. So now you think you have your guy and you tell me you're not going to do what you did to people you didn't even suspect? That's a good point, right? And imagine what they might suffer too. You know what I mean? If, If that's what they did to them. Right. Which is crazy. So the next day, Wei Fio was asked to recreate the events that took place the night of the murder. This recreation was videotaped. On the video, Wei Fio is standing in a room with an interpreter next to him. Other than the two of them, the room is packed with police officers. Packed. And they're all like filming different angles of it. A book is shown to Fio. It consists of pictures from the crime scene. 
one of the officers pointed to the picture of the bloody garden hoe and asked him if that was the hoe that he had used to kill the two people. And then he asked if they left it at the scene. He responded, not there. We threw it somewhere, but I don't know where. The questions that are being asked can be construed as leading, but when it came to the physical recreation, it was without a doubt the leading of a suspect. In the video, Theo was given a plastic garden hoe to physically recreate what had happened on the beach. As soon as he was given it, he started making hitting motions. At least half of the room basically yell at him to stop and point him towards two men on the ground. The camera then pans to two officers that are on the ground. These officers were on the ground, basically in the missionary sexual position. So side note, this means that the clothing of the victims being off makes sense because what the video is revealing is that the couple may have been in an intimate moment when they were attacked. Okay. And that's why the clothing was off the way that it was. Not saying that they were having sex because um, when they were found, his underwear was still on, David Miller's. And when she was attacked, Hannah Witheridge's skirt and underwear had been on, but they had been ripped off because there was blood on them. But there wasn't blood on his shirt or her shirt, meaning that they may have voluntarily been taken off prior to their attack. So that does kind of make sense. And the video reveals a detail that wasn't revealed in the beginning. So at this point, Theo is yelled at and is told to approach the bodies, right? The two men that are acting as if they are Witherich and Miller. And he's told to show them what he did. So at that point, Theo walks right up to the side of the bodies and performed the same motion as he had before, basically just a hitting motion. And the motion that he shows is like he's lifting up the garden hoe a little bit and bringing it down, up a little bit, bringing it down. Like that's what he's showing happened. But when you think about the damage that was done to the skull and the the skull of David Miller and the face of Hannah Witheridge... Um, it had to have been lifted higher up than that. Yeah, I also think the garden hoe is a very odd weapon to to have been used. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I mean, I know nothing about, you know, what they had at their disposal. But I mean, the garden, other than the garden hoe. But I just feel like that's such an odd thing to use to do those injuries. Right. Not to say that it didn't do it, but just it's an odd. It's an odd thing to yeah. have on a beach. Right. I understand. So when he walked up to the side of the bodies, he started performing the same motion as he had before. The man that was questioning him then stopped him and said, which direction did you approach the bodies from? Was it the direction of their heads? And Theo stopped and said, yes. And then he said, "Okay, now show me what you did. And he did the same thing to the side of their bodies. Then later on in the video, he was asked, how many times did your friend hit the girl? The translator repeated the question and Theo was frustrated and he yelled that he did not know. The translator is seen stroking his hair, like stroking Theo's hair and telling him, relax, it's going to be okay. Just tell the truth. 
Sophia folds his arms and backs away from the men and finally says, I don't know, three or four times. The whole video is just like unbelievably uncomfortable because it just seems like all of these men in the room are intimidating him and like leading him in their questions and kind of directing him as to what happened that night or what they think the series of events were on that beach. And I've seen confession videos before or videos where murderers were leading police to like the site of a body and the men are walking and talking with confidence, not because of arrogance, but because they knew what happened, whether it's in the commission of the crime or it's where they buried the bodies. But here it's kind of like he has no no idea what's happening around him. Yeah, I mean, it's almost like like they're they're leading him right and then he's just kind of making up as he goes and then at, at, at one point he just is like i don't know <laughs> like i don't know well he doesn't know because he also doesn't want to like they're now saying tell us what Zal lin did and it seems like he was a little bit more comfortable in admitting to his faults but when it says okay now tell us what your friend did i don't know because he doesn't know what what Zal lin told them right okay i see what you're saying so it's just, it's very it's an interesting video and it is available if you want to watch it. So I also want to know why Zaw Lin was not asked to recreate the crime. It makes sense that the men would not be together because then you can't corroborate their stories. But the police should have asked both men to recreate the crime scene and to see if their stories match up. Wouldn't that validate the fact that they're the murderers if it did? Now, Zal Lin stated that he had been kicked in the face during his questioning. So that means he would have had bruising on his face. And is that why he wasn't put on film? I mean, it's possible. The fact that they have leading a witness on camera is already one strike. I mean, if they were to actually put that man in that video and he had uh, notice- noticeable injuries, one would say, okay, well, he was abused. He was getting, he was just getting beat right. up. I mean... Yeah, I mean, you might be right about that. Maybe that's why they didn't ask. Because why would they only have one of them recreate the scene? That doesn't make any sense. And not everyone involved. So the police have never commented as to why they only had um, the one man recreate the crime scene the day after the confessions. Yeah. But besides the DNA and the confessions, there was another piece of evidence. And I know that the DNA matching could be destroyed by a defense attorney, as could the confessions. But the next piece of evidence that the police collect is very interesting and I think is very damning towards Theo and Lynn. And I think it it's kind of hard to kind of get through this one. An iPhone was found at the residence associated with Wei Theo. When the serial number of the iPhone was given to the British National Crime Agency, it was confirmed that the serial number of the phone matched that of the one that was given to David Miller. Okay. So, Wayfio did have possession of David Miller's phone. Or it was at a residence that he's associated with. Okay. I mean, yeah, you're right. I mean, how do you, how do you um, explain that one? Right? Yes. I mean, that's pretty... Now, I will say that both Wei Fio and Zal Lin were living at, I guess you can call them like 
workers quarters it's kind of like a hostel for work like a permanent hostel for workers so could someone else have taken that phone yeah they could have because many people lived in that room right it's more than just the two of them correct well the two of them didn't live in the same room okay but there's still more than one okay more than one person yeah because, I mean, those kind of places, you could have multiple people in one area, I believe. And they, they were. Yeah. So, it was that final piece of information that made the Thai police feel that, without a doubt, they had their murderers. In a show of confidence, they chose to hold a public recreation of the murders. This time with both men. Now, this is two months after the murder took place, so those bruises, they were able to heal. I also don't know how I feel about this because I feel like a public recreation of the murders is very disrespectful to the victims and their families. Well, they re- they've really never cared about that, have they? No. So Syrie Beach is packed for the event. Journalists, police, tourists, even more people than the day the bodies were discovered. Everyone watched as Zal Lin and Wei Fio, cuffed at their wrists and ankles, walked police through what happened that night. It was the same leading questions and gestures saw in the video. After the display, the general consensus on the island remained that it was not the boys who committed the murder. But no one was willing to speak up because they felt like the, the, a member of one of the mafia families had done it. And this was the cover up. These were the scapegoats. You don't talk about it. I mean, and rightfully so, right? If you want to stay clear and just carry on your life you don't say a word and i don't i don't i don't blame them right i mean you'd be afraid too well yeah especially if you also own a business well the burmese are not going to say anything because they're physically scared and then the thai people on the island aren't going to say anything because they don't want to face retribution when it comes to the businesses they own right so you have to worry about the families you also have to worry about the police there's like you know there's a lot stacked against you if you were to open your mouth correct In December of 2014, it was established that the court case of the two men would begin in July. The civil rights lawyer that was initially involved in the mistreatment of the Burmese men on the island contacted the family of the boys and told them that he would put together a defense team and take on their case pro bono. Hall, who's the lawyer, Andy Hall, wasted no time in getting the story of these men out, and he wanted to proclaim their innocence. He gave interviews and talked about the abuse his client and countless others on the island suffered at the hands of the Thai police. He also stated that his clients were being forced to live with shackles on and they weren't allowed to leave their cells. They had to stay in for 24 hours. The police responded that they were locked in their cells for 24 hours for their protection because the men were on suicide watch and they also feared that the men were violent and may harm others. The boys also formally withdrew their confession with the assistance of Hall, something they had been trying to do since October 20th, 18 days after their confession. But they they kept like stopping the legal process so they couldn't formally withdraw the confession. That is so corrupt. That's not even funny. A few months later, the case would go to trial. Lost in the chaos and claims of abuse, racism, false confessions were the families of the victims who sat in court for the entirety of the three-month trial, listening to what had happened to their loved ones, day in and day out. The prosecution was confident. They felt like the evidence they had was strong enough. The DNA, 
the confessions, and the phone. Pretty strong evidence, they thought. Three judges would preside over the case. There would be no jury. So here's the argument of the prosecution. The prosecution is going to say that the DNA was 100% a match for Zal Lin and for Wei Fio, 100, which is Im- scientifically impossible. But that's what they claim. They claim that the two boys confessed to committing the murder and they recreated the scene. Wei Fio did twice. Zal Lin did once. They said the phone was found in an address that was associated with Wei Fio, but they did not give a motive for why these boys did that. The defense. The defense is going to say that the confessions were given under duress. Therefore, they should not count. They also made the argument that the boys tried to withdraw their confessions on October 18th, but they were not allowed to do so. Finally, the court was going to hear their withdrawing of a confession, but it did take a long time. They also argued in reference to the DNA that four profiles were mixed in with the DNA sample. So the DNA sample was very convoluted. So in no way could there be 100% certainty that these were the profiles that came back. So here we learn that the DNA samples were very mixed. So you have the DNA of, it's going to be hard to explain. Obviously, we learned that it must have been a semen DNA sample. So we learned that there's sample from Hannah Weatheridge because it's her body, David Miller. So the two must have engaged in sexual acts and then two unknown Asian males. Okay. So that must have been devastating for the family to hear, first of all. And second, that is, and they're right, a very convoluted sample. So finding a match would be a lot more difficult than it would be if you have a victim and one perpetrator. Right. They can't turn around and claim that it's a 100% match or or even close to a 100% match, especially with every DNA sample tested from that, uh, or every time they tested that one sample, Right. It's it's going to the profiles are very complicated to match in this case because of the amount of samples involved. Yeah, they were sweeping the town. <laughs> no, no. What I'm saying is the sample that they have, the profiles are really complicated because you have four DNA profiles in one. In one. You're correct. So finding a match is going to be incredibly difficult. Right. So even like putting aside the DNA sweep. Even if they had one guy that they were two guys, they were pretty sure did it. That would be really hard to find the match in that profile. But that's exactly why they can say that there's no certainty. There's no certainty at all. Because, oh, yeah, you know what I'm saying? Like, that's totally what they're going to say. Oh, you know, th- oh, it's one. It's this person or it's that Listen, person. You can't even say 100 percent certainty when it's one person and their blood's all over the victim. Or, right. You know. So then they also stated that the police refused to retest the DNA. So the defense wanted to test the DNA against their client, their clients in the sample. But the Thai police said, no, the DNA was not collected or stored up to international standards. So they can't give the sample out. So if it's not up to international standards, then how can they use that sample to test right. to find out who is guilty 
or 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 innocent at all right. right they basically have not what it sounds like here reading through all the documents is that they didn't store the sample correctly so it can't be retested again which then brings up the question of well how'd you test it against all of the samples that you had how'd you test it against these two men and also they how didn't. contaminated was it because they didn't and if they did it was botched right totally botched there was also a thai forensic scientist that stated that the collection of evidence was horrendous and everything could have been contaminated the murder weapon that was found at the scene was tested and it had the victim's blood on it and one unknown male which did not match the two accused but it was never tested by police you would think that that would be tested right yeah like, that's what I'm saying. It's it's yeah. very bizarre how they're handling evidence. Another thing that they said for the defense was that in his false confession, Theo said that Lynn hit Hannah three or four times, but to cause the damage that was done, it would have had to have been over a dozen times that Hannah Weatherich was hit. And the defense does bring up the fact that, hey, this is a capital murder trial. These two men are going to die if they are found guilty here. So we can't... Like, there's so much reasonable doubt here, is what the defense is saying. Okay? So on December 25th, 2015, the judges are ready to rule. Zhao Lin and Wei Fio are found guilty and would be sentenced to death. After the ruling, the mothers of the accused wailed as they were carried down the court steps. David Miller's family stated that they were happy with the outcome of the trial. Now, this is something that I want to give to David Miller's family because we can read what the reporter said about the trial and what the lawyer's aftermath of the trial is. But David Miller's family, I know they are somewhat biased because their family member had been murdered, but they sat through all three months of that trial. And they stated that they believe justice was served they sat through the trial. The evidence was overwhelming. That's what David Miller's family is going to say. I know they may be biased, but again, we were all not present in the courtroom. But it does seem like the Thai police really want to just have this done. Yeah, see, I, you know, like you're, like you're saying, I mean, we, we weren't there. We were in the courtroom. Right. But I mean, it's just if you hear. That they are not testing evidence that were that was on the weapon that was used to beat them to death. It wasn't tested. The the mismanagement and the you know the mishandling of everything in this case. I I just don't know how you can sit here and say that those two are um, guilty and yeah. now being put to death, and then that you're okay with ju- that justice. Meanwhile, you don't even know if those are the two that did it. And I and even though I know that your family member has passed and it's un, unfortunate, I I don't know. I just wouldn't be comfortable with that because yeah. it's not done right. It wasn't done correctly. The whole process that we that we getting to this point. Yeah, I feel like this is where it becomes very conflicted because in this podcast, what we love to do is really allow the victims to come through and to seek justice for the victims and to also be respectful to them and their families. So we do want to remain respectful to David Miller and his family. Um, They were really dragged through the mud with all of, through all of this, because 
Think about how they found out about their son and brother's death. Think about, you know, what they had to go through in that three-month trial and hear about how he died so many times. And, you know, no matter who committed these murders, David Miller, his family said, and I agree with them, is that he died a hero trying to save Hannah from the attack that took place. And that is why he was murdered. So I just, I do feel so bad for them. But then at the same time, like you said, this was not done right. So can you say that justice was served when it seems that there are so many problems with the investigation, with the DNA testing, with the treatment of the people on this island? It's just, it's so sad because there's so many lives that have been affected here. That's true. And I think uh, the last thing I want to add too is just, you know, that family... Oh, we're not done. Okay, oh, I'm just going to say, and also, this family was also, like you said, dragged along. But you got to think, they're probably tired, too. Three yeah. months. So I can understand trial. a little bit of the other side than uh, than where I was sitting, uh, standing on. Because maybe they just want to go home. Maybe they just want to feel like justice was served after three months. They want to close this Deliberating book. and all that other stuff. So, yeah, you know. And the case of Hannah Weatherich and David Miller are not the only two investigations that foreigners have felt have been botched by the Thai police. The police actually have a very shaky history of not solving mysterious deaths on the island, especially when the victims are tourists. Now, these deaths are going to occur, one, before Hannah and David's death, then their death occurs, and then several after. So there's a lot of weird things that are happening on this island. So what I'm going to do right now is I'm going to, and not in detail, but briefly go over some of the suspicious deaths that occurred on the island and that the Thai police have botched the investigations of. Okay. And it's, it becomes infuriating, and then it makes you go back to the Hannah Weatherich and David Miller case and be like, wow, they might have just ruin the lives of two men that didn't commit that crime. Right. Okay. So eight months before Hannah and David were murdered in January of 2014, Nick Pearson died on the island. Nick had been on vacation with his parents and siblings. One night, he and his brother had been out at one of the bars. Nick started talking to a Thai woman at the bar. He was immediately told to stop talking to her by the owner of the bar. And the owner of the bar was a member of one of the top three families. He backed away, but he and his brother agreed that it had been a scary situation. The following night, the whole Pearson family went out to a bar on Syri Beach. That night, Nick had had a few drinks. And because he had an injured knee, he fell earlier in the week and he had an infection in his knee. His father and brother helped him up to his room. They had to help him because the stairs of the hotel were really steep and winding and were kind of like built into the rocks. So they went into Nick's hotel room. They took his shirt and his shorts off and they just like kind of laid him on his bed. The next morning, Nick was found floating in the bay that is located at the base of the hotel they were staying at. So, yes, I know what you're thinking. He got up in the middle of the night, wandered out of his room. He was drunk, fell down the steps into the bay and drowned. Well, that's not possible. The steps are super steep and winding and like I said before, built into steep rocks. 
At the bottom of those steps is a walkway and larger boulders and then the water. If he was drunk and stumbling around, he would have marks on him and most definitely would have broken a bone because it would have been a 50-foot drop into the water. I mean, yeah, it's pretty severe. Yeah, you'd have some some injuries on your body. A few scratches. <laughs> Something like that. The autopsy revealed no marks and no broken bones. The police did not question anyone at the hotel that night, or anyone for that matter. They didn't even step foot in Nick's room. They ruled it an accident and refused to investigate further. Okay, great. Nick's brother, um, who actually lived in Thailand for a few years, said that he loved Thailand, but he it is very well known that on Koh Tao, there are no laws. That's insane. So four months after Hannah and David's murder in January of 2015, there are two suspicious deaths. Dimitri Popsi was the first. He was 29 years old and from France. He was found hanging from a beam on the front porch of his house that he was staying at. Remember what they told Sean McKenna to do? Yes, hang yourself. To hang yourself. So his crime scene was not kept private, as with Hannah and David. Onlookers took pictures, which they posted on social media as well, which unfortunately have not been taken down or horrific photographs of this man hanging outside, like basically on the front porch of a house. And um, you see people just all around just taking pictures of him. It's just it's very sad. His family expressed that he had never had suicidal thoughts and that he was not upset about anything, rather that he was excited to be traveling the world. A woman that he had been dating on the island said that he called her twice that night, but she had been sleeping, so she didn't pick up. What remains a mystery is that his hands were tied behind his back. Now, we know from the Rebecca Zahau case that there is a possibility that you can do that to yourself. Um, sometimes people that are committing suicide do tie their hands together in order to stop themselves from fighting death. But still, the family felt this was a suspicious way to die and it was never investigated like no autopsy was done so three weeks after dimitri's death still in january of 2015 was the death of christina ansley christina was 23 years old when she was found dead in her hotel room there did not appear to be a struggle in the room and there were no signs of an attack or rape the thai police concluded that because christina had been drinking while taking antibiotics for a chest infection, that that was the reason for her death. However, they did not perform a toxicology report. You know what's odd? And all of those have um, something in common. Infections. Well, not Dimitri. Okay. Well, no, I wasn't going to say the infections, but did they all go to the bar? Well, they all went to several. Like, there's... On Syrie Beach, there's probably about 15 bars. Right, and there's a line of bars. I'm and they're just saying, all owned by family members of the... Could it be that maybe there's something in their drinks? Not, you know, it could you know, yeah. it could vary from a poison to a hallucinogen or something. Right. They're not testing for the toxicology report. They're not, yeah. they're not getting tested, so how do you know? Like they're having a very strange drink that's causing them to act weird. Yeah. Or possibly die. Yeah. I mean, yeah. you know, you know... Especially tourists, they're not going to know if it's like a hallucinogenic uh, genic properties of some sort of liquid they could put in your drink. And it's just reacting weird with any medications yeah. that they're taking. Or something. That's a good point. 
Christina's father was alarmed by the fact that the police were not following through with the investigation for his daughter. They hadn't questioned anyone regarding her death. Even though at 6 a.m. CCTV footage showed a man leaving her room at 6 a.m. The police later learned, he later learned that the police knew who this man was and knew that six hours after he left Christina's room that he left the island completely. That's suspicious. Very suspicious. Police never questioned him. Her father eventually tracked the man down himself and called him, asking what happened to his daughter. He said the conversation was emotional but straightforward, and he didn't think the man was responsible for her death. But in reality, how does he know? The police didn't even call him. Right, there's no follow-up. There's no investigation at all. I mean, yeah. I mean, what do you do? And you can't say that someone died because they were taking medication and drinking and then not do a toxicology report. Yeah, right. Exactly. But at least bare minimum that should have been done. If that's what you're going to say was the cause of death. And if the one gentleman walked out of his um, oh, like apartment, uh, apartment, um, you know, like a bungalow and walked and found himself in the bay... Did he fall off? Was he, if he was intoxicated or he was like, you know, something was going on, you still have to do an autopsy. Right. You still need to find out the cause. Was he drunk or on something or a mixture of the two and then fell off? It's, right. Then maybe that is possible. But then what about his injuries? He had no injuries from falling on rocks and boulders. It's very strange. So something's going on there and I don't know what it is. But it is weird how the uh, the two that we were talking about in this podcast, the both of them were brutally murdered on the beach. Yeah, that is something that's that was something that the Thai police could not ignore. Right, that was just whereas out these in other the open. ones could be accidental deaths, but they are very mysterious. And then one month later, after Christina's death, a Russian tourist, Valentina Novozonova, disappeared after she left her hostel. Um, when she failed to check out on February 16th, the owner basically knocked on the door trying to get her to leave because he had other people coming in. And when he went into the room, all of her belongings were still in the room. So police checked CCTV footage. It showed her walking towards one of the bays, but never recorded her coming back. So they just said she drowned. <laughs> and you know what's crazy too? They have footage of everyone Coming and going. Yes. Or, and all, all of a sudden, they don't have any, any any footage of her coming back. The amount of CCTV footage that they do have, I think, is... Surprising. Surprising for such an under-policed... And they never catch anyone. ...island, and I think it's used for different reasons. Probably. Yeah. And they don't catch anybody. They don't even, they don't even dive into anything to investigate. I know. Well, after all of these deaths and no investigations... Well, I'm sorry, one investigation, however, it was really botched and most likely two scapegoats were sentenced to death the activist slash hacktivist group anonymous got involved oh wow they claimed that Zhao lin and wei fio had been set up and that that is why they hacked and crashed the royal thai police website and servers they claimed that the videos of the recreations they found were a joke and that the thai police wanted to blame migrant workers for the crimes or ignore them so their tourism industry would not be affected. The Thai police are a disgrace for the way they investigate the crimes committed against foreign tourists, the anonymous hacker said in the video that was released. After the video was released, Hannah Weatherich's sister spoke out 
on behalf of Anonymous and she thanked them and agreed with what they said. I mean, yeah, right? I mean, how do you how do you just not do the right thing and investigate these disappearances and deaths and anything you could find? I mean, it's just unbelievable. But still more suspicious deaths continued to occur on the island. In 2016, Luke Miller was found at the bottom of the hotel pool that he was staying in, and the police claimed that he hit his head on a diving board and drowned. Reportedly, he had a large bruise the size of a hand on his shoulder, and it could have been consistent with someone holding him below water. His death was also never investigated. There was also a whole other case of Elise Dalamain. However, um... That case is so intense that I think we could do a whole other episode on it, so I don't want to get too into it. But these mysterious deaths just continue to happen. And when you compare the population size and the amount of tourists they get per year to other larger islands, the amount of deaths that occur on this island are super high. Like, there is no reason these amount of deaths should be happening. It's almost like they don't want tourists on the island. Yet they yeah. cater to them by, you know, having all the bars and restaurants and it's stuff like, to that nature. Right. But they, it's almost like the, these families don't want these tourists. Well, there. I think they don't care or they don't care what happens to them because they're seen as disposable. disposable. Yeah. Yeah. But let's go back to the case of Hannah and David. The appeals that were attempted by the two men that were convicted were... Um, not upheld in 2017 and the Supreme court of Thailand in 2019 stated that the prior convictions would be upheld. The men, however, still maintain their innocence and the fact that they were framed in a statement made just after the ruling of the Supreme court, the Thai police force issued a statement that said, we admit that in the past there was a mafia in Koh Tao. That took advantage of tourists. Today, we've gotten rid of them. So they're trying to say, okay, there used to be a mafia here, but 2019, they're all gone. That's what they're saying. Highly unlikely. In August of 2020, the death sentences of the men had been commuted. A lawyer that represented the pair stated that this was a step in the right direction. However, the two men are still fighting for their freedom and... They didn't do it. So, I mean, they're still fighting with their appeals. I mean, they don't have that many left. It was also important to note that what you would consider the mayor of Kotao was quoted as saying, these foreigners live according to their culture. This leads to accidents and risks. He also went on to blame the alcohol consumption for most of the deaths that took place on the island. Um, he has since apologized for these statements. The prime minister also made statements that were very similar. They think our country is beautiful and safe and they can do whatever they want. Wear bikinis wherever they like. I'm asking if you wear bikinis in Thailand, will they be safe? Only if they are not beautiful. Wow. <laughs> I mean, they're, they're really uh, rubbing it in. Yeah. I mean, they're really adding insult to injury. I mean, they're pretty much like victim blaming. Yes. And I, I will say he has since apologized for his statement. Well, of course. Yes. But that doesn't take away from, you know, his, you know, his um, feeling, true feelings, feelings of, yeah, right. about the tourists. The only thing that I will say about the statement 
that I can understand a little bit is, you know, how, like, let's say we feel like we're in a bubble here and, you know, like, we're the only ones that exist. If we're not... If we're not um, open-minded to other people's cultures and 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 rules, there could be then a you can't conflict. There. Yeah, you shouldn't travel there. Um, I'm not saying that anything else that they said were correct because it's not. But I will say, like you know, you go somewhere else in this in this you know world. You go to another country. You need to abide by their laws, even if you don't agree with them, and mm. you need to un- try to respect their culture as well. Right. You have to be cognizant of a country's culture. So, like. Whereas in Thailand, it's not really okay for women to dress that way. However, all the tourists that go there do dress that way. So that does cause resentments between the Thai and and the Westerners that do go there. Correct. So that does cause a little bit of complication. And that is one of the sentiments that are there in relation to the theories regarding Hannah and David's murders. So like there are two theories that exist as to what happened to them. First, were they found having sex and this was seen as offensive because they were having sex or they did have sex on a beach on that beach um, based on the DNA samples. So were they found and it was offensive and then they were murdered and then they, they raped her. I mean, is that what happened or, um, did they upset the mafia in some way? I mean, it has been, and I'm trying to like, I look up and I don't know how accurate this is. So please don't come at me for this. But I went into all of these travel blogs um, where they talk about Koh Tao. And one thing that was said is that if you go to the bars in Koh Tao and the bars are run by one of the families, that's what it says, like in quotation marks, that you need to know that when you purchase something, you're you're never going to get change back. So say you get a drink for like, say, $5, and you hand over a $20 bill, you're not getting your change. Did that happen with David Miller and it caused a fight? But I don't know. They've already been there for a week, so they should know that already, you know? But so... But did a disagreement happen? Just like with Nick Pearson, he got into a disagreement the night before and then the night after there was a murder that, well, an accidental, accidental yeah, with no yeah. I injuries. Think, and like I said, that's, that's, that's where I draw the line. Nothing about their statements are accurate. And we're not saying anything about them doing something wrong, the victims I'm talking about. But you do when you do travel, you, do, you should try to, you know, respect the culture but i don't i think this is more than that i think this is more than that i think there's you know mafia someone was driven. sick out there yeah. they did this and it could be involved with the mafia but i don't know and I, I i but i do think the phone is weird that is the only piece of evidence that i'm like i don't know but you said they were in a hostel where other people could have had access yeah. to his stuff stuff this is a complicated one. At the very least, there is a strong amount of corruption on that island. 100%. That stopped justice from happening. Yeah. The correct way. Like, if you want to believe that the two men did it, that's totally good. But you can't ever say that that investigation and the evidence is smooth. Right. So, like, if justice were, were to have been served, it was done in the wrong way. Agreed. But... This is a hard one. I like it. And complicated. Good case. Yes. Oh, thanks. And, uh, you know, your hearts just go out to the families because their their kids were just going there to have fun and that should have never happened to them. 
All of them, really. Yeah. Yeah. Every single Every victim. single one of them. All right. Before we go, we do want to thank um, all of our new supporters on Patreon. So we just want to give um, a shout out to Ellie Latosh, who upped her pledge from five to ten. Mindy Kuadal. I hope I said your last name right. If not, correct me and I'll say it again. Uh, Gemma Pinches. Kyle Ruest. Mandy Davis. Ivy Jewell. Diana Phillips. Lupe Hernandez, Jordan upped his pledge from $1 to $5, Beth Castro, Peter Bjorgensen, and Gary Leafholm. Thank you guys so much for becoming new patrons, and we hope you're enjoying all of the now 42 episodes that are up there. And if you would like to join Patreon, you could do that at patreon.com slash couple. All right. Bye, guys. Bye, guys. <laughs>